It is indeed a pleasure to have this privilege to play here for you. We, we intend to give you a very fine program, so just settle back, relax, and enjoy the moment. 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 Hey, what's going on, everyone? Welcome to Mike Up, an unapologetic black podcast based right here in Charleston, South Carolina. I'm your host, Mika Gadsden, and I'm here with an episode that was honestly inspired by the previous episode, episode number 17. If you listened to that one or if you read a description, it took place live at an event that myself and my friends and fellow leaders in the community Uh, spearheaded. It was called the Conjure Sessions. And the Conjure Sessions came about after a conversation. But where I found my inspiration from was I wanted to create community. I wanted to create a safe space for young, hip, black Gullah Charleston here. And I wanted to uh, make food and fellowship uh, a centerpiece of the event. Because food and fellowship is just essential to African-American culture, specifically Southern African-American culture. And then when you mix in the whole Gullah identity, food takes on a whole other meaning. (laughs) And so I got to thinking, I got to thinking about what kind of food I consume. I started to think more pointedly about where I purchase my food, food sovereignty. That's a, a subject that I've learned more about from previous guests on the podcast, like Sunrose Iron Shell, um, not just food sovereignty, uh, you know, locally sourced produce, seasonal produce, uh, you name it. I, th- I think food has become highly politicized in all of our lives, whether we acknowledge it or not. Um, the scarcity of food, the scarcity of, of fresh or nutritious choices, um, all of those have a political component. And so I wanted to give that more thought And as I was thinking about where I get my food and what I'm consuming and what my family and community members are consuming, my mind just kept landing on a friend of mine, um, someone who I had the awesome pleasure of having a really, really candid uh, late night conversation with. And he is Lindsay. Lindsay, uh, he runs the LSG bus. And I'm saying that because (laughs) it's the Low Country Street Grocery Bus. It's a mobile farmer's market. And I remember uh, Lindsay starting this voyage, so to speak, uh, back when he launched the Kickstarter. I think it's almost five years ago today. And I remember being an early, I guess, I don't want to say investor because I own no part of the the bus. <laughs> but um, I remember just being very excited about his idea of having a bus that's mobile stocked full of fresh produce and local groceries and taking that bus throughout the Char- the greater Charleston area and specifically to areas where there may be food swamps or food deserts. Um, so I was really excited about it. But to be honest with you, after the Kickstarter, after seeing the bus roll for the past year and a half, I kind of lost focus of, of Lindsay. And it was just through our, our shared workspace kind of that we crossed paths again and we started to actually dialogue and talk about where he is today. So today's episode is going to feature uh, Lindsay and his partner in crime, Olivia, who's a dietitian, who's um, a, a newer addition to the team, but she adds a very, very special component. Uh, one through the lens of, um, I guess you could you can view her, her job 
as an educator. It's, there's no guess about it. There's no ambiguity. She's an educator. And she writes food prescriptions for folks. Uh, and I love that idea of healing through food. And one thing that really struck me about Olivia is her connection, the connection she's made between food and community. And going back to what I initially said about the conjure sessions and about how food was such a huge component of the event and who I had prepare that food and how, how important it was to enlist a partner who was committed to community. Um, you know, once I, 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 I processed last weekend's event and my conversation with Lindsay and Olivia, it became so abundantly clear that food, food sovereignty, food scarcity, nutrition, um, all of this is really at the forefront of a lot of communities and um, people deal with making certain choices every day. Um, And it is political, whether we acknowledge it or not, whether we see it as political or not. Um, having Having access to quality food, it really shouldn't be difficult. Um, that being said, um, I'm happy to see both Olivia and Lindsay being people at the forefront of this issue here in Charleston, um, and maybe even in the nation in terms of how they're going about solving the problem, um, solving the problem of food deserts, food swamps, um, food scarcity, and not trying to put a bandaid on the issue. They have a number of systemic issues solutions that they're trying to employ and of course they they need more support more community support and that's something that I've recently pledged to give but beyond my help I hope anyone listening and perhaps even uh, uh, people I, I will encounter in the future because I am committed to being an ambassador for the low country street grocery team um, I hope that I can convey the importance of the work being done by not just Olivia and Lindsay, but the entire team uh, of young people, college students, you name it. Um, just so many people who really care about the mission and the goal and really want to solve the issue at a systemic level as opposed to just giving folks through through toxic charity, giving giving them you know, odds and ends and, 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 and maybe less than healthy, less than suitable uh, food options, which we've seen a lot here in Charleston. And I'm trying to use my words very carefully um, as not to upset the apple cart, so to speak. However, um, I will be very honest, probably on the other side of this podcast, on the other side of the interview. So, um, yeah, just listen in to what Olivia and Lindsay had to say about their business and about their goals. And then I'll talk to you on the other side. So we decided a few years ago that the best route for uh, our mission delivery and our sustainability is traditional business tools. Um, what we now know is uh, a social enterprise. There are a lot of B Corps out there as well. I think that folks out west and folks up north are a little bit more familiar with the model, um, but I feel uh, adamantly and vehemently that uh, utilizing traditional business tools um, promotes a level of sustainability. Um, for the company, for the mission, and more importantly, um, it allows for levels of empowerment 
um, and it doesn't, I think it doesn't take away sense of pride. Um, and that's an issue that I've always taken with uh, certain nonprofit models that do um, similar work, you know, that, that we do. So what, what fundamentally, what problem are you, are you trying to, to solve? Uh, we are, long story short, we're trying to uh, address a systemic issue within our local food economy. Um, and that's food access, uh, that's food security. Uh, and in doing so, we want to provide um, one of the very many solutions that are necessary to get people closer to their food um, and you know, recreate uh, some of the, the simplicity um, of the past. And, and by doing so, um, alleviate a lot of the health stresses um, and disassociation uh, from community and food uh, through community. So that's what you're trying to do with the uh, the local the the bus essentially. Right. And so Olivia, so what are you trying to do with your work? What are you what are you trying? What problem are you trying to solve? So through LSG, working with LSG, um, I would say as a dietitian, I see a lot of obvious like obviously chronic diseases that seem to um, be most, not most prevalently, but a lot in indigenous cultures and um, and like Native Americans or Native Alaskans or um, black communities, whatever it might be, wherever you are. Um, and a lot of it, I think, is based on their traditional foods. Um, getting taken away and the culture getting taken away um, around the emphasis of those foods. Um, and in that, people lose sight and touch and connection with where their food comes from and why that's important mentally and emotionally. That um, stripping of the culture and um, uh, the destruction of the connection between the food and the culture, to me, sounds violent. How, what would you call that? Is there a name for that? Or what, what would you call that other than colonialism? <laughs> <laughs> I know. Do you ever like? Do you ever like? Searching for a certain word or like? I don't know. Like it feels like there's like a word for it, but honestly, I mean, you can attribute it to, of course. um, You know, just just I guess what what this country was founded on. Um, I don't, but I don't. I think it's something deeper than that. There's there's a reason. Do you know? um, I mean, I just kind of going back to like immoral business codes, you know, and only addressing the bottom line and creating uh, you know, economic advances in a selfish way that takes away from culture, community, and has been doing so for decades upon decades. And that's exactly what we're trying to change. I, I think that's one thing I observed, I, just being a, <laughs> being a layman, <laughs> being a layman <laughs> is that, um, yeah, fast food, like fast food or quick food, the way we even eat, everything is very quick. It's low on nutrition, high on other things, content, you know, other sugar or fat or salt. And, um, but that's for a reason. It's, all of that makes it more palatable, I guess, or appetizing, but not necessarily nourishing. I don't know. So, the, but I think, I think you touched on it, Lindsay. Okay, so... All right, so you want, Olivia, so you want to solve that problem and help people, I guess, reconnect 
to the food using culture. Yeah, that's right. And I think a lot of it, um, to me, comes from a lack of trust from people that um, people can handle themselves. And they've been doing it for a long time. And they know deep down biologically what what we need to do. Um, and instead, people come in and say, this is what's going to be good for you. This is what you should do. This is um, what you should buy, what you should eat. And it's taken... Um, and with that, that's where a lot of the... Um, a lot of what LSG, what we focus on is giving people empowerment and people say that all the time but in the very real sense of the word where it's they can make these decisions they can provide for themselves they can take care of themselves and their family and if you don't feel like you can do that it automatically leads to um depression anxiety drug problems alcohol problems so it i do think it's systemic outside of just like I said, I told you before, we focus on food, but I think it it bleeds into so many other parts of life. I think that's a really seriously that's really profound. It's not just um, hyperbole. That's, I I don't, I don't think I've ever thought of it that way in terms of um, we don't use perhaps um, the traditional way. We don't we don't use our foremothers and forefathers' ways of, of eating and raising food, and how that. How we think now, I couldn't do that. Oh, I couldn't have a chicken coop, or I couldn't grow collards, or I couldn't grow. But you can, and that all contributes to a number of other issues. So let me ask you, uh, Lindsay, what made you just, what made you even come up with this idea? Like, what what was the inspiration for this? Um, Well, I was working in Hawaii, I guess, because I've been in Charleston for uh, almost 20 years, and I've kind of seen the... The growth stages that we've we've all known um, and become familiar with for the past few years and working in and out of the food and beverage industry here always having a love for food and growing food um, I guess here locally in Charleston it kind of started with this uh, realization that we have so much access to uh, amazing local foods with, within our restaurant community right um, we have Farmers coming in every day with the best tomatoes on the East Coast. We have um, almost a year-long growing season. We have an amazing culture um, of growers here in the Charleston area. Um, Some families that date back over 100 years that are still getting it done. Um, Both the Freemans, the Fields. um, We've got most of our farmers. Anyways, a lot of old guys, a lot of old gals been doing it forever. And it really hit me one time. when I was working um, from an office in in North Charleston in the Chicora uh, neighborhood, when we first moved in, um, I wasn't familiar, I was familiar with the area, but not in a a daily, um, you know, regimented way. And after about three or four days, I realized that there's just a total and utter lack of anything fresh. And so I started digging around a little bit and having a political science background and philosophy, so I started getting really uh, political with it and kind of trying to understand why Charleston was, um, you know, consensus best city in the country, best city in the world, best city this, best city that. Um, and winning all these awards, we got James Beard award-winning chefs downtown, which I'm working with on the regular. But I'm looking down the road at my neighbors here, like, you know, what's up with that? We got best city in the world yet just a mile down the road you got kids living further beneath the poverty line than anywhere else in the state Um, that really struck a chord and just 
realizing, coming to the realization that we didn't have any uh, access to um, affordable, healthy food um, in that area of town where I was just becoming um, uh, familiar with was awakening. It was eye-opening and it was just a profound moment in my life where I realized this is kind of what I want to do is address this through uh, a systemic model that would promote the growth of this, you know, kind of activism for years and years and years. And it's not just a band-aid to fix one small problem. It's, you know, bigger picture. Let's not just sit around tables and talk about it. Um, Let's get out there and do something about it. Let's find out what really works and what doesn't work. And let's talk to the folks that are living and breathing that problem every day and work from the ground up. Um, and so that's that's where we are now. Oh, wow. And how long have you been on the road rolling? Uh, about a year and a half now. A year and a half. But I remember the Kickstarter. That's where I first came across. So that was what year? That was four years ago the Kickstarter came in? 2015. 2015. Yep, that 2015. So you've come a long way, but it took you a while to actually... So you had so basically your business runs on a bus, a retrofitted bus. We call her or him. I don't know if they have gender or pronouns. Um, it's a lady. Okay, okay, lady name now. You can at me in the comments for anyone listening. <laughs> oh, oh, Nell. Okay, but Nell is Nell is gnarly in a good way. Like I love Nell. I remember when you got Nell and and things were going on and I didn't know what was going to happen. <laughs> um, but so how long did it take you? to like get now and retro and get her ready to just be a, a rolling produce shop uh it took a, it took quite a while we've we've really been patient and taking our time with this whole platform we knew that it would take a long time for people to really understand it and we wanted to understand ourselves all of the nuances um, of the business when we decided to um you know attack this issue from traditional business tools as a business we knew that it would come with um, the freedom of, of business, but it would also come with the um, the hard task of you know having um, and having the income um, that we would need and uh, the startup money. So that kind of took some time. We wanted to build out uh, the bus, you know, with our own hands. We really wanted to build the bus from the ground up and do as much of it in house as we could to really learn it, get to know the bus, get to know our surroundings, our team. Um, not to mention we were farming at the time, so we could understand the uh, business. I'm sorry. No funding. Like you mean like a nonprofit? So you had uh, yeah, you so had to raise the money. Kickstarter right? raised money to get to physically get the bus, um, and that was about it. And the Kickstarter campaign was more about marketing, right? So we got you know we got a pretty good following. Yeah, um, but I mean it's it's crazy. People who buy into Kickstarter are like, oh, so I gave you like. You know, two hundred bucks. Is it? I'm like, uh, I got equity, right? I'm like, what? <laughs> nah, Somebody's what watching Shark Tank a little too yeah, right. too close. <laughs> uh, but that that's a whole that was a whole issue in itself. And so the Kickstarter thing was like, once we got funded, people were like, oh, that's it, they're on. We're like, hold on, y'all, we still got to build the whole thing, you know. But, but that's lot. what I didn't. Re I think I didn't realize that, and because I I left the the co-working space and didn't interact with you right. or see. 
I even lost focus of what you were doing in the interim. So I think initially I said, okay, Kickstarter, all right, I get it. They're gonna start rolling, but it wasn't. It took it took a long time to to get going because you had to do it from like you, Olivia. You were kind of mentioning like without without funding or like how did they- yeah yeah. So I mean, I wasn't even here at that time when Lindsay was doing it, but like he sold his kayak and stuff like that in order to like everything changed. Yeah. So like money from not being a nonprofit, um, we have tons of support, but no like huge funder single funder or anything like that so it did take a long time um and a lot a lot of community building actually a lot of relationship building so do you get like criticism people ask you well, why aren't you a non-profit like why aren't you yeah what do you how do you address um, that you know what we're doing and and learning you know having to learn the hard way and doing this without funding we've i feel like we can start a business doing anything now literally we can do well i don't know maybe i shouldn't say that right now but um, you know, the, the reason, the main reasons we're not a nonprofit in, in looking at this. Um, so I did mention earlier that I worked uh, for the government in Hawaii for a little while. And that kind of gave me this idea as I was tasked with developing um, platforms that would address the diabetes endemic in Hawaii. Which and I so, didn't know was an issue. So, so uh, the indigenous folk in Hawaii deal with uh, diabetes. and Big time. So there's very, um, there's very poor access to healthy food. And, you would um, never think that. Right. And that's, it was very surprising um, to me getting there and realizing the severity of it. Um, the biggest part, though, is nutrition education there. A lot of what we started a, um, a brown rice, mo nice campaign over there. And so the. Uh, Say it one more time. Brown rice, mo nice. Okay. So it's kind of like, you know, white rice is good, brown rice is going to be better for you. Oh, brown, mo, mo brown better, rice so. is mo nice, mo better. Okay. Mo better, mo nice. That's, it, was, it was crazy. Okay. But so we got. Um, so folks over there are, there's a famous, it's called a plate lunch, right? And it's a cool, I mean, trust me, I used to eat these things all the time. It's like, some sort of meat with a gravy, um, brown or I'm sorry, white rice on the side, and then like macaroni salad, cold, you know, macaroni salad, rice, delicious. But that right there is your whole calorie count for the whole day. Um, and folks are eating it all the time, all the time, all the time, all the time. I mean, I was going to meetings. Um, I don't know if I'm really allowed to say this, but I'll whatever. We were. As I worked for a representative there, and we had to fill in for her at certain community meetings, and we had to go um, sit on a panel for a local morgue that was having issues with uh, their what they called their burn time um, because bodies were bigger than they were previously when the morgue was built, right? So this is a, this is a huge issue that, see? Wait a minute, you don't even think about, my mouth is like open because I'm like, wait, you don't even think about like how this doesn't just impact people like living, it impacts almost every aspect Oh, so they had somebody somebody submitted a video, and this is in Honolulu, Hawaii. Somebody submitted a video of um, smokestacks looking, appearing as if they were going to explode behind um, their children's school. And so the school's getting out. It's about three in the afternoon. Kids are running. People are picking up kids in cars or whatever, and you see the smokestacks behind them. I felt like I was in like some CIA show or something crazy because they're zooming in on the smokestacks, and then the guys that own the mortar explaining the issues. To some city officials and they're trying to combat fines and whatnot and they're basically saying look bro i gotta break what do you want me to do i gotta break bodies down and it's but that was the thing we went from i sitting in that meeting i was like 
you're going to tell me that the average weight for you for incoming was 210 10 years ago and now it's like 260 or something incredible like that and they're going to have to change their entire you know it was that was another one of those moments where it's like okay this is a bigger issue than we really thought you know and this is what five six years ago right um it was all about the the diet that right okay so were there diet became um after world war ii that diet became like culturally relevant and very it was something it was like an emotional thing right that was the attachment there was the plate lunch was like the loco moco was like this is how no nah, i mean this is how we eat bro you know that's what people no we can't mess with this this is how we eat and it got it was very it was very it was a very touchy subject well i i see this almost um parallels to the african-american community too in terms of I think the ties to kind of some of our more unhealthier foods and slavery and community and church. It was actually a big, in my mom's church, uh, I think uh, someone, or the reverend cut out these chicken dinners and it like caused the biggest uproar. And I'm like, it's just chicken, but it's not. It's I think people have a big connection to community. Because you brought that up, I wanted to ask Olivia, like, so how do you do that? How do you navigate in terms of trying to solve this problem? Um, you know, help help people become more educated and connected to their foods. How do you do that without disrupting community, or, or how do you help, I guess, heal it? Yeah, sure. So, and I wanted to mention too because so I um, have worked in Alaska, um, and I've worked with Native American populations, and as Lindsay was saying, in Hawaii is another totally different culture, and then being here. Um, is a whole nother culture. And so, but the thing, no matter where it is that I go, all of those cultures disproportionately have higher incidence of cardiac disease, cardiovascular disease and diabetes because their traditional diet and culture and foods are pushed out and replaced with our quote unquote Western American diet, right? Um, so, and a lot of it too, you know, when we say like, well, like Lindsay was saying about Hawaiians saying like, this is our culture, this is our food. Um, and sometimes like the chicken or whatever, like fried foods that get the, like, this is our food down here. A long time ago, that wasn't the food. They lived off the land. They. Uh, I, I was going to ask him because when he, I'm like, there's no way that plate, that plate meal that he was saying, it was no way that's one, because there has to be something to account for that growth in size that the, that the morgue was dealing with. So. Yeah, it wasn't always Mm -hmm. culture. So, like, yeah, so, like, in Alaska, they do a lot of, like, hunting and gathering, but, like, fishing and all that, and that's what, it's subsistence living. And then in the south here, I mean, it was, they did a lot of hunting of venison, and they did a lot of growing of um, vegetables. I mean, that was the base of the diet, but it it comes before the current southern diet, you know? And so people have adopted this because it fits our lifestyle now, right? Let me ask you a question. How much does poverty and like, like income disparities play into that? Because I feel like when, when people are uh, perhaps their income is more fragile or whatever, um, that they lean on things like rice, like, you know, starches to kind of fill in the gap. So, so you know, cheap or cheaper foods. Do you think poverty plays a role? Absolutely. Um, but it doesn't have to is what we're kind of arguing. Um, it just takes the thing that people don't like to hear is it takes work now to um you can eat well on a limited budget but you have to cook and you have to spend time on it and you have to and so that's like a big push is getting people back 
to older ways of doing things to connect with their food, but also to be healthier. And so it's not just, um, we want you to like grow fruits and vegetables or because um, for one reason or another, it's multi, I don't know, it's beneficial in multiple ways. And so, um, yeah. It's not just about looking good. It's not about being, I think that's the other thing too, in terms of when when you talk about health, um, when you talk about food, um, we often equate that. Even I did that jokingly earlier by saying, you know, you're skinny. What do you know about food? <laughs> no, doesn't mean, no, that has nothing to do with it. It's with how you nourish yourself and, and whatnot. It's, it's deeper than that. And you brought up depression and other issues. That, I want to piggyback off what you said in terms of you don't have to be a millionaire to eat well and eat good food. So, Lindsay, what do you do to make your food more accessible to people um, who are like dealing with uh, food insecurity? How do you make it accessible? We we put a grocery store on a bus. I mean, that's essentially what we decided to do. But I see uh, we're looking at your bus right now from the window, I know. and at, I it's so pretty. Yeah, looking at it from the back. I don't know. Again, I didn't, I like <laughs> I'm joking. But no. Um, but I see what I'm looking at specifically are what is this? It's a, a food stamp program right so i want to know more about that like how do you make it accessible uh all right so we got food access right we can pick the food up we can source it from right now 90 different local vendors um because that's the other part of what we do is trying to operate um on a very small scale local Local. economy right because what's the first thing that goes say the economy hits right now Nonprofits. What's right. the second thing that go? Any sort of logistics chains that you're, you're developing. Right now, we are totally uh, reliant on our local farmers and our friends and the small businesses around us. So that's really important. Also, the stuff on the bus, we're getting it that day. So it's super, super high nutrition. It's the most baller food you can get around here. Seriously, I mean, you're not going to find this at Whole Foods. You're not going to find this anywhere else. And what we're able to do with our model, naturally, is, is the sliding scale thing. We call it a Robin Hood economy. And... I love that the hustler in me loves that. Oh my God. Instead of of focusing on uh, one population segment, Mm -hmm. um, and this is where I was going at, this this is just a ramble session and I can go off on it. No, no, no. But did you get this from somewhere else? Because I I love this. This is what, what at the end of of my tenure in Hawaii, um, I saw a lady that had a, a pickup truck. And she was hawking vegetables because I went and, and devoted the majority of my time into starting a farmer's market in our district that didn't have, you know, it was, it was three and a half miles um, between grocery stores in this in this one uh, particular place in our district. So we opened a farmer's market there. and It was really hard. It took months and there were people like, you're never going to be able to do it. Nobody's going to come. And we did. It was hard, but we made it work and it was successful and, and people came. I'm not sure what's going on with it now. I need to check in on that. Um, but I met a lot of farmers. I met a lot of folks that were interested in, in, in becoming impassioned in this uh, movement out there then. And I saw a lady that had a pickup truck that was hawking vegetables out the back of it um, in some low-income neighbors in Honolulu. And she was only accepting um, SNAP benefits. She was, it was basically like food stamps, mm-hmm. truck, vegetables, that's it. And I was thinking about it. I was like, damn, that is cool as hell. I was like, what do we, how, I know Charleston has a demand, right? We know that. Mm-hmm. And we're winning awards and all this nonsense. It's like, how do we do that? How do we take that and take what works and apply that to something that doesn't work? And that's where we have low income neighborhoods where grocery stores are pulling out left and right and leaving, you know, vast areas um, with no options other than 
corner stores and bodegas and whatnot, especially for folks that can't get around. So that was the other thing. It was like, yeah, you can drop a grocery store in there. Yeah, you can do a farm. You know, you can do all this. That's great. But we need something that's mobile so that we can get around to different neighborhoods and pockets and hit on um, some of the older folks that really don't have mobility and hit on some of the folks that are having to, to um, take three and four and five people in a cab or a van to get to Walmart I and mean, take an hour and a half out of their day to come back with groceries and they may or may not have kids, you know. Um, so the bus is the answer. So we're like, let's, let's make a grocery store, full grocery store on a bus um, dealing mostly with local farmers. So we're going to pick up the farmer's market and put it on wheels and then drive it around to areas that need it. Now, how do we make that work as a business? We go into affluent areas, right? Uh, so so name some areas. areas in the Charleston area there. So the best example, um, when we first started last year, uh, I mean, we go everywhere from um, Somerville, well, it's barely Somerville, it's a little too far for us right now yeah. until we get another bus up and running, but we got um, North Charleston, a little bit of Somerville, um, James Island, Mount Pleasant, West Ashley, um, you name it, downtown obviously a lot, but Last year, we were going from um, Joe Floyd Manor on Thursday afternoons where you have the highest concentration of uh, low-income older folks in the in Charleston County. That's where, where the own radio station that's was? That's right. That's right. Um, and it's mostly older folks, uh, so we pulled the bus right up in front, um, and it was hard. It took time, but... Uh, that's where this incentive comes in. I'll get into that in just a second. But we were going directly from Joe Floyd Manor uh, to the Old Village in Mount Pleasant. And if you know anything about Old Village in Mount Pleasant, that is the um, highest income median in the state of South Carolina. So we wait, 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 really? <laughs> Mount Pleasant. It's real tricky. So okay. see, we can that that allows that affords us the ability to do Joe Floyd Manor. Um, because we can go and, and make, a, make a quick buck somewhere else, and we're making that quick buck by um, supporting local farms and putting, you know, getting this stuff out. People want like more access to farmers markets, and they want that baller stuff. They want Celeste raw milk. They want it, you know. Right. Like, so you don't have to sacrifice quality. And I think, and um, I'm actually going to add this later. Um, I'm going to go off on this a little bit later. A lot of nonprofits that try to solve this problem, I feel like they've they've been giving people. Uh, shitty, shitty, shitty shit, shitty food. Um, I'm not gonna name names yet, um, but because it is, it quite frankly isn't. It's an issue of life or death for some people, right? So if you're if you're setting up uh, programs or whatnot where people are not getting the best quality, because I, I don't that that should have been the goal. Right, like that's that, the so goal. We talk about right. like. Ooh, that's a real stick. I can tell if right yeah, you and I so, talked about this. And that's something that yeah. we kind of catch flack for a lot. It's like, well, you know, somebody <laughs> says, well, why are y'all, why are y'all gonna bring all that nice stuff over here? And I'm like, what? Excuse me? You want to, right. you want to talk about environmental racism right now? Right. I mean, that's the that's kind of stuff exactly we're getting. What it is. So we're trying to. Sometimes you gotta look at them like, man, we're just trying to do too much because it's a lot and it's too much. It's so much to explain to folks, and that's why I always say it was like, this is a grander scheme, bigger picture. I like that. We're trying to address. A much it's we're not a band-aid mm -hmm. we're looking at this as something that will hopefully uh, flourish into something bigger and be able to sustainably address the systemic issues and barriers that we currently see right and that's one of them the food emergency programs are are necessary and we need them but there's a time and a place right and that's where the empowerment comes into um, we're not you know once you start working on bridging that gap 
um, without a transaction or without empowering folks to make decisions and you start telling folks like, well, this is what you need and I'm gonna tell you why, that's a problem right there, uh, right? You, you, you preach so, to the choir with that one because no one, exactly, and, you, and, and Olivia, you mentioned this too, you almost, you're, you're empowering folks to make their own choices. This, this business model is very interesting. I honestly thought the bus was nonprofit until I sat down and had conversations and um and, but you're and but I see how the unique business structure, the mission of LSG, and your role. I don't think we express what your role is. You, well, I know you mentioned you're a dietitian, but what your role? What do you want to do daily or weekly or whatever monthly? What do you want to do to help people? I guess realize their own agency in this whole in solving this problem. Yeah. So, and I would start by saying one of the top questions we get all the time is, like, from various, popu- from across the board populations, is why we're charging people for food. Oh, you get um, that question a lot? Mm-hmm. Yeah, from, away. yeah, instead uh-huh. of giving it away. Um, and, I mean, we've touched on that some, but at the end of the day, people, I truly believe that people want to feel like they're contributing and that they can like I said before, be self-sustaining and afford to feed their families and themselves and take care of themselves. And whether that means, so using our sliding scale, you're still paying something and in that you're going to care more about that food. So how I look at it, it's like we, um, some places where we'll go, people will like give someone a free bag of food and I have literally seen people take an entire bag of sweet potatoes and go to the garbage can and throw them away. So they are 100% devaluing food when they give it away for free. And it's not because necessarily we're looking for money out of that. It's that we want people to value this because someone worked on it and then if you value that sweet potato then you're going to prepare it and eat it and enjoy it and so talk about a huge like it's a whole thing. yeah, but but like and, and I bet you I bet you if you would have told me that seven years ago, before I kind of like left corporate America, I would have like, what? no, that's not what you do. You help people. You give it to them. You're right. It's 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 revolutionary. Which is and, and that's how most people, like my father, like he would love to earn what he gets. Like I think every, a lot of people relate poor people who are poor. They're not different species they still have pride they still have you know they still want the same things they just may not have as much disposable income to put toward good things you know good better food choices and then with the proliferation of dollar stores now and the closing of stores that sell produce so like you know they're only going for what they can get and it's just, I think it's revolutionary what you're saying in terms of you know we charge what we but you still make it accessible and what's healthy bucks so is that healthy help- bucks is where we can also, we make it secure as well okay. right like uh, food access is one issue food security is another um, you know you might have access to this bus it might be in your front yard but you might not have even four bucks to run out and buy it um, some squash and tomatoes. So this is an this is an incentive program called Healthy Bucks that we worked um, very hard to get through the state. Um, oh. Since we're not f- currently farming, and it's a whole thing, but it, whatever, it's uh, it's simple. You spend five dollars on your um, EBT, you get ten dollars free produce, and it works every day. Um, really? You know, there's no limit as to how much you can get out of a month or whatever. There's no gimmicks. There's no there's nothing. You just can't use it more than once a day. But it's literally you spend five. EBT on anything you want doesn't matter it can be we got local lip 
chaff in it. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like it can be yeah. literally anything, <laughs> and that opens up ten bucks for free produce. And people. So so people like that. People love it, man. And some people really get it. I mean, I got I got this dude that comes in. He gets like, he'll spend. Um, you know, five, six bucks on this little um, smoked olive oil thing. So he'll get some like baller ass oil yeah. from the bus. Um, and then he spends the rest on oyster mushrooms, shallots, garlic, and you see what I'm saying? So he's like, he knows what he's like, I'm gonna come in here and make a baller ass meal right. at night with, and it costs him at the end of the day, six bucks that's for amazing. everything. Yeah. Um, so there are ways that we can incentivize it. And that's what we're all about is like finding innovative, unique and creative ways to provide folks with food rather than just giving up and saying here's a here you go here's a hundred pounds of squash have fun there's no nutrition education there's no love there's no care nobody knows who's handling it nobody you know what i'm saying it's just a bunch of junk could be now yes. and i'm not trying to trash go ahead. anybody I'll fill in the blanks, it could go be ahead. i mean you just don't know Wait, we're gonna input we're gonna put a disclaimer in here <laughs> no i mean you know it's you never know where it's coming from and i know personally um, of farms that have, you know, they donate their, and they can't wait for cer certain uh, organizations to come through because they get, you know, they can kind of get cleaned up. They right. get clean your fields, and then that goes towards um, predominantly low income um, neighbors right. that right. it's not coincidental that a lot of these folks don't have access to health care, right? And they don't, and so then you're. So you're not, you're not solving, right? That, you're not solving right. the problem. You're actually adding to the problem by. Um, okay, so you mentioned education. So Olivia, so is your role, do you take on an educational role with the bus? Yeah, so that's one of the other things that we're trying to do. We have a long laundry list of stuff, but um, starting what we call a food prescription program or a grocery prescription, um, and we've piloted it a couple of places, but basically um, as a dietitian, I, and I do think that obviously being healthy is important and it's part of all of this um so where I would come in and I teach a class on nutrition um it can be any sort of format like eight weeks long like a solid group or 10 weeks or it could be a one-time thing um and then Lindsay pulls up with the bus and if for people that have participated in the class and are coming um they do get a voucher and then can go grocery shopping on the bus for produce. And so that's another incentive program. Um, the vouchers come from funding from community businesses or whatever, or other nonprofits that then can afford to pay us to give people produce. Um, but although they are technically getting it for free, it still falls under that category of they've made a commitment to do something in order to um, get that so they're still given to right. get right yeah. and like, yeah, I think even in, in um, other uh, older cultures like bartering and it's the same yeah. thing but you're not getting it it's not that old charity thing where you're just getting this free sack of potatoes yeah. okay so in closing on in this how do you feel hopeful about your place in this space in terms of trying to solve or <laughs> trying to help solve I guess food insecurity or uh, how do you feel hopeful I'm very hopeful more so than ever before I mean I, you know we're about to drop these numbers on our advisory board um, both victories and business and victories that are social returns and uh, I think one thing that we haven't that we've neglected to address right now is the ability for our data to prove to um, you know whether it's a Piggly Wiggly or larger grocery stores or other folks around the, the region in the country that there is um, there is a, 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 an income, there is a margin 
in uh, these marginalized neighborhoods that folks are pulling out of, right? And they're giving up and they're saying, we can't make money here, so we're out or whatever it is. You know, I think that's something that we haven't been able to touch on. And I think that we now have data that can prove that you do have to work your ass off, right? And you do have to get on the ground and you do have to, um, you know, work from the community up. And that's what we're all about. So maybe it wouldn't work for everybody else, but we're, we're showing that it, it does work, um, and what we thought would work is working, um, and that I think that this sustainable model obviously is extremely difficult, and we're in a very precarious place now after we've been running for a year and a half. I mean, honestly, we wanted to run uh, for two months, um, run like a two-month pilot and see how it worked and go back to the drawing board. Um, but we weren't able to stop because we were actually running this food prescription program and a couple other things. People were like, you can't stop. You can't stop the bus. So I quit my part-time job that I was paying bills with and went, you know, all in on this. I pushed my, my chips in and stood up and I'm still doing that now. And now we're having to go back to the drawing board and say, okay, let's really, let's, let's look at what works, what doesn't. Let's look at, um, the potential, you know, our opportunities here, um, that, we have potential partnerships and all over the place. Um, what makes the most sense for our growth? What makes the most sense for our mission delivery? And what makes the most sense for the sustainability of the business? And we're really, really excited because we have uh, enormous and elaborate plans for the very near future. Um, but I think right now we're going to have to probably take a little bit of a break um, and sit down. So, I mean, I'm spending 100 hours a week driving the bus, doing the marketing, sit, you know, ordering. From, I mean, it's insane. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm a total buffoon. Yeah. This is crazy. No, but, but, that's, it's, uh, but that's grassroots. And right. That's how, and that's how it works in your bootstrapping. Right. So. But we're extremely, I mean, yeah, we're hopeful. How hopeful are you? I'm, well, I'm kind of like banking on it happening. But, um, that's true. I do, I guess the last thing that I would want to say, and this sounds like so, such a cheesy shout out, but through doing this, um, we're trying our own little way of correcting our really screwed up food system and local food economy. But um, we have, Lindsay and I have gotten to know so many people in different communities that have been absolutely essential to making our us mentally be able to do it and like physically be able to do it. But that's like from extremely like affluent community members that are supportive, not even financially, but just morally supportive. And then people um, on the lower end or even on the food prescription side or whatever it may be, like we have some really tight people now and it comes um, from listening a lot to what they need and want and just being just being people and just talking and it's being a true community. Community. And, and the non-non what do you use that? We throw that word around all the time, and I think people lose um, what it actually is to be a community. You know, I think you're teaching people community, and I think I really appreciate the work you both do. And, well, real quick, one question. What book and or documentary would you recommend people to read and or watch? Just one. Mm, book or documentary. I would say... Um, the cooking gene, probably. Oh, no, yeah. Toxic Cherries, obviously. Toxic Cherry is the book. And what's Cooking Gene? Is that a book as well? Okay. Yeah. Well, okay, you both agree, or is that? Or do you have another one of your favorite? Mm. Anything that educated, or, any, or anything that educated you, something that you did that educated you. That We're writing a book called Unity for Food. So Are you really? Obviously. 
Oh, <laughs> look <laughs> for it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, is it a meal? Um, you probably are going to have it, but you spoke to um, I actually, I think because mm, I don't know the cooking gene is a good one. A lot of what um, actually inspires me is um, historically looking because I'm a nerd. I'm into science too, but um, a lot I've studied a lot of stuff about like our biology and bacteria and how we have set ourselves up and how that affects what we are now. <laughs> um, so anything that has to do on, on that, and like it seems totally unrelated, but like the, um, the good gut and books like that, they dive into how our um, indigenous selves play into our current selves and our health and our food, food, food selves. So I think that's... That thank you. No. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for sharing, and I appreciate everything you guys do. Thank you. I want to take a moment and just read from the Low Country Street Grocery website. Um, just read their short, um, their mission statement or, or their approach to what they're doing. And it, it says this, and I quote, Low Country Street Grocery is a mission-driven mobile farmer's market designed to make healthy local food affordable and accessible for Charleston residents. Sales and operations take place aboard a classic retrofitted school bus that travels across the Lowcountry service area. Our mobile market sets up shop at multiple convenient locations throughout the week, making the farmer's market experience more convenient and accessible. Everyone deserves access. Best of all, our, our mobile market will have the capacity to visit areas uh, of Charleston that currently lack access to healthy, fresh food. And I think just reading that little portion right there from their website, I think you get a sense, a better sense as to what kind of work both Lindsay Barrow and Olivia are trying to create. Not only are they trying to solve at, at a systemic level um, the issue of food insecurity um, and also food swamps or food deserts, they're also trying to educate folks about the, the, the food that they sell. Um, especially speaking with Olivia um, off the mic, just hearing her passionately describe the healing properties of food and how also healing community or tying food back to community, how healing that could be. And like I mentioned before I, I, before this episode started, I mentioned that this this episode was inspired by the Conjure Sessions because that's exactly what I wanted to create in creating a safe space for African-Americans here in Charleston. I wanted to create a space where we could foster community. And I know community already exists throughout Charleston for a multitude of communities, but I wanted to hone in specifically on African-Americans because I feel like we've lost a little bit of our connection to our food. Yeah, we, we have soul food, and, and there are great restaurants selling some of our favorite signature soul food dishes. But there are a host of other foods that we've lost touch with. There are a host of other methods that we've lost touch with, whether it be growing our own food, creating compost solutions to, you know, to food waste, so on and so forth. There's so many things that we've done that our ancestors have done. Um, from, from a multitude of communities. So many things that we've done to sustain ourselves. 
that we've all gotten away from. And so I really want to work to create that connection again. And I was just so inspired by both Lindsay, conversations with him, and conversations with with Olivia. And I look forward to a continued partnership. Um, Again, I mentioned earlier that I have committed to being an ambassador or helping out the Low Country Street Grocery uh, team as much as I can. And I wanted to put that in the podcast to hold myself accountable and to remind folks, hey, if you don't see me on the bus as AKA Miss Sizzle (laughs) on the Magic School Bus, if you don't see me on that bus, if you don't see me, um, you know, repping for this team, I want you to hold me accountable and ask why. Um, And so that's why it was important for me to state how important this work I feel is. especially me when I think about my ancestors, when I think about the work that my father did as a young man. My father was born in 1939. So you can imagine the type of uh, work he had to complete as a young boy growing up on Wadmalaw Island. And my mother, who was born in 1949, the work that she had to complete. I remember her recalling days where she had to pick collards and tobacco in North Carolina. So you know, we've, we come from a long lineage of folks who grew their own produce or either worked on farms and within agriculture at some shape, in some shape or way, right? Especially if you're African-American and of the South, sharecropping, working on farms, all of that is familiar to a number of us, a number of families. And while it comes with a complicated past of exploitation of black labor and brown labor, um, there is something to be said about the skills that had to be learned, um, the skills that we brought from Africa as descendants of enslaved Africans. There's so much science and so much heritage and things that we can be proud of that tie into our, 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 our relationship with agriculture here in the South. And so um, I was compelled to, to reach out to folks who are creating that connection through food and also folks who are working to make sure that everyone has access to not just food, but has access to great quality. I think Lindsay used the the word baller several times throughout the podcast. Yeah, I need access to baller status food. I need organic. I need I need local. I need the best things. I want to know who my farmers are. And we are blessed to live in a, in a city in an area here in Charleston where we have farms on Johns Island. We have farms throughout the low country area. And it's time for us to reconnect with those those farmers and also invest in the next crop of farmers and invest in businesses like LSG who are working to solve problems. So I hope you all were Um, inspired to learn more about LSG and about Lindsay and Olivia and their work. Um, I really uh, encourage folks to just support them in any way you can. Um, I believe Lindsay is going to announce a number of ways that folks can help. Um, They are trying to grow and be more effective in their mission. And so that requires community. That's the word of the episode community. And so um, I hope that if you're, you are so compelled, please um, look in the description of this show episode from, for just ways you can get in touch with LSG. Um, you could always, of course, reach out to me directly. My email address and other contact information will also be in the show notes. 
Um, I think I'm going to go ahead and take a break after this episode. Um, one thing is for sure, I'm not really beholden to like colonial or capitalist standards when it comes to creating content. If I am so moved, I will crank up this microphone again, but I believe I'm going to take a break, recalibrate, um, you know, refocus on the next shows and, and things coming up for the Charleston Activist Network. Um, I just exited a very energized election season that brought a lot of challenges to me personally, um, emotionally, and just a myriad of challenges. And so I want to rethink my work and my work is leading me to be more unapologetic. So just stay tuned for more announcements as to what the Charleston Activist Network is going to be involved in. Of course, there will be another Conjure session. I'm looking forward to that. And I just had a meeting with some of the dopest, most creative minds here in Charleston. And I look forward to sharing news about the next Conjure sessions with a lot of you. And that'll probably take place shortly after the new year. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm recalibrating all of what I'm trying to do and create. Um, I'm being led to, to lead more unapologetically and I'm being led to just create a platform where I can speak not just my truth, but I can amplify the truth or the stories from so many other marginalized communities. And I'm excited about this new shift. It came um, by virtue of a lot of pain and discomfort, but that's where a lot of growth comes from. So just hang tight with me. If you want to support this podcast, as always, our Patreon or my Patreon information will be in the description of this episode. You can always reach out to me. DMs on uh, Instagram work best. Um, maybe Twitter a little bit, but more, more, more readily. I guess I'm more readily accessible via Instagram and email. So just get at your girl if you have any questions. I've been so overwhelmed by so much positive support. Um, the Conjure Sessions was amazing. I might come back with a bonus episode to articulate just how impactful and how important the Conjure Sessions was to me personally as an activist voice here in Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, so just, yeah, I might do that. I think it's worth sharing. And I want folks who were not African-American, who were not um, invited to this space, I want them to understand why it was structured the way it was. Not that I need your approval, but more so just to, to explain why these spaces are necessary. And I also want to share some of the, the audio, share some of the, you know, just some of the feel behind the conjure sessions and I look forward to continuing this and creating a tradition in and around amplifying both activist voice and creative voices here within the, the Gullah community. So thank you for listening to this episode of Mic'd Up. I'm so happy you're rolling with me still. Until next time, be well and take care of yourself and work on community. <laughs>